Good evening, everybody. Well, welcome to the Entrepreneur's Journey series. My name is Jane Kader. I'm a director of the Institute of Entrepreneurship and Private Capital at London Business School. Uh, today's topic is all about learnings with the benefit of hindsight, and in fact is called What I Wish I Knew 12 Months Ago. Um, a fantastic thing, hindsight. Um, if only we uh, were all privy to it to be able to uh, anticipate what was about to happen. We've got a great lineup of speakers. We have Rosie Bailey, the founder of Nibble, Nasty Rigawama from Umwaga, and Pedro Cabrero from Yezi. And I'm delighted to say I had the privilege of working with all three of those guys uh, last year when they were in the London Business School Incubator. Um, and uh, the progress that they've made over the last 12 months is, is really testimony to their uh, resilience and uh, their ability now to speak of their learnings is uh, fascinating and uh, I'm sure will be invaluable to you all. You can connect with us on LinkedIn and Twitter at LBS Entrepreneur. Please do check out our website for upcoming events and resources and also follow our blog, the uh, LBS Start Hub. So without further ado, I'm going to welcome Nasi. Nasi, if you would uh, like to take the spotlight. Thank you so much, Jane. It's wonderful to be back at an LBS event and lovely to be sharing some of my experiences of this past year with you. And when Jane asked me to be a part of this, I was thinking one year ago, very little's happened. I mean, shouldn't you be asking me about the past two or three years? And then I remembered that it really was just one year ago when we were getting started. So I hope that means there's been a lot of learning. I know there's been a lot of experimentation and, and embarrassment, but um, a few things that I did pick up along the way that if I were to do this again, I would make sure I, I don't repeat. So my name's Nasi and my business is called Umuga. It's a social network for tradespeople and service industry workers. So we like to describe it as LinkedIn for cleaners, gardeners, and hairstylists. And so with that, we're building a two-sided network. We've got the classic chicken and egg. Do we get the workers in before the employers want to come find them? Or should it be the other way around? And these things are always just really hard to spin up. And I think that's been our challenge. And at the end of the day, you are dealing with people. This is business to consumer. And we're trying to get as many of these C's on the platform as possible. And you learn with this kind of business that getting people to do things is really, really difficult. One of the things for me, I think, at this stage last year is, is we were still bootstrapped and the money was running out very quickly. I finished my MBA at LBS in July of last year. And so it was just kind of whatever was left in the bank account post MBA, which wasn't much. I was a solo founder and just kind of doing everything with a very small team and very limited resources. So my approach to the first fundraise was going completely wrong. And I, you know, James had me crying on the phone over this story, but I took the easy route out. I was practicing my pitch on an angel investor slash friend. And at the end of that practice session, he said, I'm in. And I hadn't figured out evaluation. And I just sort of said, well, great. I mean, <laughs> fundraising done. Let's just wrap this thing up and then all is well. And I didn't have a plan B and I over, overly relied on the fact that we had a friendship before we were trying to get into business together um, and things went sour. And when they did, I didn't have a backup plan. And we had really kind of gone into this process. It was quite difficult to unwind at that point. And so that was a crucial learning for me, I think, definitely in terms of a fundraise, but 
in all aspects of your business is always have a plan B. You know, we got to times where we sort of ran out of experiments on how to get customers in. We lost a key outsourced team of ours that was handling all our marketing. And you ask yourself, what are we going to do next week for all our channels, et cetera? And so I'm slowly learning that in every aspect of the business and in every way possible, always have a plan B because things will go wrong and you don't want to then have to start scrambling from scratch. And in some cases, you, you really just can't. It was my biggest mistake, which was on a fundraise and running out of money is the easiest way to kill your startup dreams. Sort of scraped my way through it and um, trying to be better this next time around with starting our next fundraise. The second one, I've just scribbled down here, have a tribe of mentors. Now, the one thing I wasn't ready for was the emotional journey. You're going into this new venture, you're going to try something. You're going to, at some point, you know, lift your head up and say, hello, world, this is me and this is what I'm making. And you can feel extremely self-conscious about that. You're, you're putting yourself out there. I imagine some people back from my past life in private equity looking at say a LinkedIn post and saying, oh my gosh, Nessie, what are, what are you doing with this tech stuff? Like, what happened to you, man? And no one's thinking that. But people might be keeping tabs on whether you win or lose. And it becomes one of those immediate topics whenever you catch up with someone. How have you been? How's the business? And then maybe after that, how's the family? And so you're talking about it. You're living it all the time. You're figuring out how to build this thing as you go. You're learning how to be a founder, you're learning how to excel in your industry, you're learning how to be a manager, how to be a CEO, you're learning. And um, it's helpful to have people that can help you along the way. I had one great mentor in the beginning and I thought he could help me with everything, but that's not really the case. You know, we sort of got to a point where his experience sort of kept out um, and I was still asking him for help with things that he hadn't done before and he was doing his best. And so I got to a point where I said, well, I could do with a team of people like him and not just business related things, but it would also be great to just have someone that I could call and say, is it okay for me to be feeling so self-conscious, so anxious, so almost immature about what I'm doing, about whether I'm doing it right, about how people are seeing me and just how I'm feeling, you feel kind of really, you don't feel great. You don't feel like a powerful CEO and it's, now, if you can have someone that has been through that, knows what you're feeling and can help you, and then someone else that can help you with a financial model and someone else that can help you with a marketing strategy, it will really take you uh, some ways down the road as an early stage founder, especially if you're a solo founder. The third point I want to leave you with, um, this one, I mean, it's, it is as obvious as it sounds. I was told a billion times, and I probably still need to be told a billion more. It's listen to your customers. And, you know, we did all the good stuff, all of the customer discovery, which is, you know, really diligent in the beginning, speaking to people, finding out that, you know, the problem we are trying to solve is real and these customers experience it and testing our solutions with them. But I think we stopped listening at some point when, you know, we thought we have it, we have something. Uh, this is interesting. We're going to build a business on this. And you end up trying to shove your solution down people's throats, being arrogant and saying, they just need to understand it. When they see the magic, then they will start doing it my way because it's obviously brilliant. And it took us probably 
somewhere between four and six months to just kind of go back to emails and messages where they had been telling us exactly what they wanted from the beginning. And we were saying to ourselves, we're a social network. We're not just another jobs website. So we're not going to have jobs, jobs listings. But I think 60% of the people who signed up would send us a message and say something like, where are the jobs? I want a job. How do I find the jobs? How can I get a job? And we literally just had to stop and say, hey, when they sign up, they want to see jobs. They don't want to connect with someone or post an idea or an article they found. They want to see jobs. And it's really just stuff that, that, that is that basic. Um, and then the question is, how can I build this jobs experience into my social network experience without losing the community aspect that is really important to what we're trying uh, to build? Um, and as I say, you know, someone's going to have to keep hitting me on the head to say, just listen to what they're, they're saying to you or go out and speak to them and get some real information. Uh, so please be better than, than I was and really listen to your customers. Fall in love with the problem that you're trying to solve. Do not fall in love with your solution, even if that means turning into an entirely different business than the really cool, sexy one you have in mind right now. The problem your customer has is what you're doing this for. And the solution that you come up with them might be a fluid and moving thing, but get it from them and make sure it's the one that they want to use. Thank you, Nasty. Yeah, absolutely fantastic. Words of wisdom and uh, ones which I'm sure resonate both with Pedro and Rosie. Rosie, shall we hear from you and, uh, and, and then Pedro, and then we'll open up the floor for questions and uh, you'll essentially get plenty of feedback. So I'm Rosie. We were in the London Business School incubator last year, myself and Jamie. We're both London Business School alum. And um, we met actually and discussed the idea and that's how it was born here on campus as well. Nibble is a negotiation chatbot with a strong sense of humor. And if you fancy pitting yourself against the smartest, wittiest AI you can find on the street, go to nibble.shop and have a go on our demo and see if you can negotiate yourself a special deal. We launched our app halfway through the um, incubator in March 2021 and eked out on one customer, maybe two customers. We're now negotiating on about a million pounds worth of transactions every month, doing about 150 negotiations a day and growing at 50% per month. So we're getting quite excited about what we can achieve. In terms of my lessons, my first one is quite similar to something Nassie said. It, it, the first and possibly the most important thing is it's all about the people. I strongly believe that you shouldn't go it on your own. And if you're a founder, you should try and find a co-founder. And to be honest, Jamie found me much more than I found him. And we are complementary and different. We are capable of having a hot debate about topics and not losing a friendship and a working partnership and we're good at different things. And that is just brilliant. And it gives you a huge amount of confidence in your own decisions to have someone to bounce ideas off and have someone to share the ups and downs with. So that's the first point. It's all about the people and the most important people are the founders. But then there's also key hires. And I didn't realize how hard it was to find the right people, but also sometimes how easy it was to find the right people 
and how important it was to focus on the quality of people that you worked with. And we've been very lucky. I mean, I can tell you, we haven't worked with someone that I wouldn't call on again. We've had a stream of fantastic interns, really amazing interns that we've learned stuff from. And our permanent hires are, are just the best. And we continue to focus on making sure that the only people that we work with are people who are really smart, really diligent, really switched on, but, but also have the right kind of ability to be lighthearted, see the funny side. We've got a copywriter who writes all the copy for Nibble and um, lives the dream of pretending to be a smart AI chatbot every day. So, you know, there's all sorts of roles you can find. And within that, Nassi said, a tribe of mentors. I couldn't agree more, Nassi. You need within that, it's all about the people. You need cheerleaders. And you need people who will pick you up and go, well, this is a bit of a setback, but I'm sure it'll be fine. And the fundamental idea is brilliant and keep going. And that's not always the people in your operational team. That's sometimes people um, at home. It's sometimes people in your formal mentor or senior advisor group, but it's often people on the periphery of your network. And we've networked like crazy for the last year, and we will continue to network like crazy for the last year. One of our most important senior advisors was a chance encounter, a part of my periphery network. I got someone to introduce us, and then it sort of went really well, and that person has been instrumental in introducing us to our first clients. So... If there's only one thing you take away from what I've said, it's all about the people. It's all about the people. And that's what makes it fun. I mean, just, there's no point working with people you don't enjoy working with. And then two smaller points that are easier to explain. The second point is it's always going to happen a bit slower. Jane's going to laugh at me. I was constantly giving her targets that we were going to miss horribly. And that's fine. It's always good to have ambition. But if you want to keep motivated and keep the team motivated, set small targets, small steps, small goals, celebrate the little wins, celebrate completing a sprint on development, celebrate getting somebody phoning you back when you're cold calling. It's small things and you've got to celebrate those wins because it is an exponential thing. And um, a mathematician was interviewed recently. I don't know if anyone's heard of Hannah Fry. I'm a big fan of her. She's a celebrity mathematician if such a thing exists and she says if there's only one way to explain exponential it's that you don't see the truck coming in the 15 minutes before it hits you which is I thought it was quite a good way and then my last point is equity splits everybody tells you this is important and difficult it is important and difficult don't underestimate the importance of getting that right and having an honest conversation as early as as is sensible on what the right equity split between the founding team is. People say it to you and you say, yes, yes, that's fine. But it is an emotional thing and I think you have to recognize that. So um, mainly, it's all about the people, Jane. Mainly, that's my key takeaway. Thank you so much, Rosie. That's great, great points to add on to uh, Nassi's. Pedro, pressure's on you now to come up with three completely different ones, of course, so. Uh... <laughs> Yeah, I couldn't agree more with um, uh, Nasi and, and Rosie uh, today. Definitely uh, very insightful lessons learned. Uh, so it's it's going to be challenging to, to say something more relevant than them. But um, anyways, I'll give it a go. Quick intro. I'm Pedro Cabrero. I'm LBS Masters in Finance 2019. Uh, I'm also a teacher assistant at LBS. 
I do the workshops of uh, Python, R, and machine learning. So you might see me around in, in campus, perhaps. I'm also co-founder at JC. I started JC right after LBS, uh, but also right before COVID. So it has been a fun and a volatile ride. JC is an app that helps you track your personal carbon footprint. It links to your bank account and gives you a real-time reading of the carbon footprint of your spending, of your purchases. And JC helps you reduce and compensate your, your impact on the planet. So it's a legit technology. Uh, we're using uh, open banking to link to your bank account. We're using machine learning to classify your transactions and more than 20 years of uh, data science of carbon footprint accounting to come up with the most uh, exact carbon footprint estimation. So it's pretty cool. I would encourage you to, to get it. We've received 1.5 million pounds in funding from uh, VCs and, and crowdfunding. We're 15 employees uh, so far and, and growing by the week. And as uh, Jane said, I had the, the fortune to be part of uh, the LBS incubator 2020-2021, which was uh, an amazing cohort. But as Rosie said, we just get to, to meet once in, in the pub. Everything was virtual. But anyways, I got a, a lot of lessons learned. However, I, I was told to focus on, on just three. So I will tell you the three that uh, resonates the most for me and that will help you reduce um, the risk of entrepreneurship. So the first lesson, uh, perhaps uh, very in line with uh, Rosie, is to hire senior people in early stages. And senior is very relevant for this. Most entrepreneurs uh, fall in the trap of hiring an army of interns. And uh, in my experience, is not the way to go. It's super important for most businesses, but particularly for tech businesses. We started developing the JC app with uh, junior talent. Well, it was just uh, my other co-founder, which is senior, but then junior developers and the junior designers. And I myself, I've got background in finance, not in product management. So we did all possible mistakes, literally. And we had to redo it all again. So it took us uh, about a year or so, eight months to, to hire the, the right team. Fortunately, we feel that right now we've got the right team and six months or more to, to rebuild the app. So all these rookie mistakes um, drain a lot of resources, valuable time, money, and, and focus. And today in tech businesses, the end customer quality expectations are super high. So people are expecting apps that are super sleek, that solve uh, customer problems very fast, products of very high quality. So if you do something that it's very like um, an MVP that's not ready for the end market, you're going to hit a lot of walls. So in our case, we recently hired a chief product officer from Revolut, senior designers from one of our competitors, senior marketing and community people, and, and so on. And this will help you mitigate the execution risk. So if you're thinking of uh, hiring interns for the most important business functions, I think that it's a bad strategy. The interns are great, but not uh, for uh, key business functions. So the learning for me, the, the lesson is whenever you're doing something that requires a lot of skill, and a product that uh, is expected to be of high quality, if you're dealing with 
personal banking data or you're doing job to be done that it, it has to be perfect all the time, like sending money, like transactions and so on, it's better to do it with people that are experienced and getting talented people early on your journey is uh, super important. That's something that I would like to share with you. The second lesson would be to, to focus on proving one metric with a small group of customers. And once you nail that business metric, then you focus on traction and growth. So the key here is not to fall in the trap of trying to achieve growth if you have not nailed one business metric. So for me, it's been two years since uh, we've uh, incorporated the company. And most of the time, we've been focused on, on the wrong thing. Too much time spent on fundraising, uh, more than eight months. Also, like six months of trying to generate traction and growth we, without having product market fit. So basically, we've been swimming against the, the tide. So you have to figure out one simple business model equation and optimize it. And that business model equation is linked to the problem that uh, you're looking to solve. And that's um, different for every business. For Yeezy, which is an app that helps you reduce your carbon footprint, is uh, the percentage of customers that are carbon neutral. And to give you a few examples, for WhatsApp is message sent. For YouTube is videos watched. For eBay is gross merchandise volume. For Airbnb is nights booked. But however, there's a caveat in this North Star metric for early stage companies. For instance, if you, if you focus on WhatsApp on, on message sent, you can achieve growth by growing your number of users or trying to increase them than the number of messages that one user sends. So it's key that you focused on the second, the percentage of customers that are performing your action or your job to be done. And once you optimize that, you look for growth. And that's something that we failed to do since the beginning. And now on our second year, we're obviously working on it. But basically, this takes a lot of time. And if you focus on this simple business model equation and optimize it, then funds and traction will follow naturally, not all the way around. This way, you will reduce uh, product market risk. And the last lesson that I want to share with you is that uh, fundraising is a numbers game. So it's linked to Nasi's point of not putting all your eggs in, in one basket. So we've been very lucky with fundraising, fortunately, because we've done a lot of pitching. After my master in finance program at LBS, I pitched to four early stage VCs. I got three no's and one yes. So basically that was like a 25% hit rate, which was pretty good, pretty okay. So raised 120K from Antler, a VC that invests in tech companies early stage, developed the product, and after six months, we pitched to, to VCs in London. That was basically beginning of 2020. And we've got 19 no's and one maybe. And then February, March 2020, COVID hit, and that maybe turned into a no. So VCs at that time uh, were looking to portfolio companies, and we had to keep going somehow. So we spent six months pitching to to angels and, and VCs in Europe. And I don't remember how many 
pitches we had, but we were averaging around one pitch per day. And basically within these six months time frame, all VCs said no, and three angels said perhaps. So then we decided to shift our funding strategy and uh, we went for a crowdfunding campaign with Cedars. So the crowdfunding campaign takes a lot of time to run and to plan. So we started like three months before we did a video, uh, we aligned the, the angels and we started the campaign with four angel commitments for a hundred thousand pounds. It was a successful campaign since the beginning uh, because we did all our job of uh, reaching out and a very cool video and landing page. And we raised our target of 250,000 pounds in the first day of launching. And over a month, we totaled over 700,000 pounds from more than a thousand investors. And then after that, we were very lucky that a few angel syndicates followed. We did a follow-on round of half a million pounds from a few angel syndicates uh, from Europe and, and US. So basically, we were eight months pitching, getting no's, no's, no's. And then one month and a half, our luck changed drastically. So the advice is to open as many doors as possible and to be flexible. You end up getting money from sources that you never anticipated. So there's a lot of capital in the market for strong entrepreneurs, and it's just a matter of uh, increasing your odds. So that's uh, all for me, and hope you check out the JC app and uh, add me on LinkedIn. Thank you, Pedro. So let me put the question back over to you guys. Nassi and Rosie, you were both talking about uh, hiring people and getting the right mentors in place. Uh, Nassi, you were talking particularly about mentors. I mean, what, what did you look for in a mentor when you were talking about getting that tribe in? You said that you wanted mentors on both personal and business level. Did they have different attributes or are you looking for particular backgrounds, people who knew your business? What was it that would, really would uh, enable you to put trust and faith into a mentor? Yeah, that's a good question, Jane. I think what I'm recommending this evening is to be intentional about the kinds of mentors that you'd like. So to think about the areas where you're weak or need help and, and then you know, go out and find those kinds of people. I didn't necessarily do that, but I did meet a lot of interesting people along the way. The best mentors would almost open the door to you asking for their help, but they would never push themselves on you. And that was great for me because it told me that they don't have any motive other than, you know, they're speaking to me, what I'm doing sounds interesting, and, you know, they've perhaps been through this before and they just really want to help. Um, it was important for me that they had had similar experiences before, otherwise it just becomes sort of advice from someone who is who's trying to be nice to you. And you, you want to go into the weeds with some of these things and, and, and tell them what you're struggling with and hope that they can really help you through. So experience would be good, uh, but then a general attitude of, I want to help you because your mission sounds super interesting. And beyond that, you know, nothing else really. Excellent. Thank you. Rosie, you spoke very much all about the people. I mean, did you, did you enlist mentors as well as, uh, as just having a, a good team with a sort of on a payroll basis? Yeah, it's, uh, it's everything. It's everything. I think on the mentor side, in fact, we've just taken on two senior advisors. Uh, which are, if you like, mentors who are now a permanent part of the team, if that makes sense. And for me, that progression, it was really important. It's quite interesting to see who's going to give you a second meeting. 
is a lot of people who will say something nice and be encouraging, but there aren't so many people who will give you a second meeting. So I look for people who immediately give you a thumbs up on social media. I mean, this doesn't cost you anything and it matters a lot to me <laughs> do you know what I mean like and actually if you could be bothered to do that uh, or follow me on social media or do you see what I mean and so the people that we've really got involved in are the people who offered those second meetings and followed up and the people who replied to my email when I said thanks for meeting and the people who said I mentioned I might be able to introduce you to so and so here's their email address or better still they email so and so and say you've never seen anything as cool as this. They don't just go, oh, would you like to meet Rosie? They, they give you a proper plug and it doesn't cost much. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Pedro, would you suggest there's a huge difference between having a mentor and having an advisor? I mean, how many of you guys have got a board of advisors distinct from mentors? So a board of advisor is um, something that you have to set up definitely they serve as a um, sense check whether the strategy and whether what you're thinking in the startup is going the right direction. Setting up a board of advisors takes a lot of time and, and it's a lot of admin to do. So obviously there's there's a stage whether you need one, but obviously early stages, you cannot commit to set up a board of advisors. But we've been very fortunate to get mentors all along your, our journeys uh, before incorporating the company and, and through all this to your uh, journey from multiple sources, from Antler, the, the VC that I started with, from the UK Global Entrepreneurship Program, from uh, LBS itself, from the LBS Incubator, from like personal contact. So it's always good to open as many doors as possible. And then as uh, Nasi mentioned, picking the ones that resonate the most with the job functions that you don't have or you, you're aiming to, to fill in, in your company. Nasi, did you use mentors distinct from advisors? Or I mean, what's been the structure that you took on board? You know, functionally what they did probably straddles both but I always saw them as mentors I, I never approached someone to say would you be an advisor to this business mm. it was always you know, you've got tremendous experience in this regard and we're going through that now or we will in the future can I call you when I have a question or when I need help mm-hmm. um, so I definitely see those as mentors but you know if we look back and we think of the kind of time and that some of them have spent and how regular we would speak and you know it almost became formal they really did become advisors in some regard sure, sure. the one thing jane that i'll mention is you do want to leave some behind at some point you know they, they stop being useful the stage of your business moves on and their experience is no longer super relevant so oh, yes, uh, whether you have them on a board or just someone that you reach out to have a way of of moving on when they're no longer helping you I think that's a good point. Having looked at so many pitch decks, the one thing which um, has always stood out is that typically when there's advisors in place, then they're typically big names with very, very relevant experience. And that's why they're essentially brought in to actually, you know, sort of highlight the the support from somebody with relevant industry experience. Rosie, you were speaking about, uh, again, we're talking about the people here talking about how you selected a team etc so there's a question that's come in which uh, I think is relevant to this we're talking about uh, what non-founder experience do you believe is more relevant to a potential founder either being a VC or being part of someone else's startup 
I mean, I would have thought someone else's startup is probably more relevant because what you want is someone who says, oh, I've seen this before, or a friend of mine did this growth hack, or I did this, or I know a good accountant or IP lawyer that would give us some quick advice on this, you know, just problem solving, getting rid of some of those kind of simple things. Somebody's also asked about insights on doing a startup not directly related to your previous career background, sort of linked question. I was a banker before this, so I, I wasn't doing anything related to this. And actually, I'm trading quite heavily on a maths degree I did more than 20 years ago to try and persuade people that we know what we're doing on some of the AI we're building, which we do, but it helps. So you don't dig around in your CV for credibility from other places. I was uh, also coming from the finance industry. I was an equity sales and trader and investment banking five years before doing tech. So uh, definitely doing something completely different now, fintech and climate tech. And what about you, Nasi? I was in renewables. We were developing the power plants. So not at all related to social networking or recruitment, but the idea came from the experience where we were trying to hire low-skilled people in remote regions to build these solar power plants, hydropower plants, and just struggling and wondering why there wasn't a better way to do it. So the idea came from there, but the experience was completely different. So, so there's a question for you. I mean, with, with the benefit of uh, hindsight, do you wish that you would have started the business where you did have direct industry and sector experience? Do you feel like it uh, actually did impact your uh, ability to succeed? I mean, obviously, you've all done tremendously well over the last uh, year since launch, but uh, would it have been easier had you have had first-hand experience in that sector previously? I want to say yes and no. The no is that having experience in an industry, having worked for a company where someone trained you and told you how things work in this industry, can be a crutch when you're trying to innovate. It's quite nice to approach a problem with completely clean eyes and just try and come up with a solution that makes sense because it makes sense, not because you've seen it before or trying to do some pattern match. The yes part is, I just think, you know, if I could start again now, I would do things so much better. So any kind of experience, even just general founder experience uh, would have been helpful, but I worry that the, the domain expertise may have sort of hampered the innovation process. For me, definitely having domain expertise is something that will reduce the, the risk of entrepreneurship and will increase the, the odds of uh, creating a product that uh, will be successful in, in the long run. But obviously, so many founders start companies without the domain expertise. So I would recommend going through the entrepreneur journey either way. But if you happen to have domain expertise, then that's a great checkmark for you and for, for VCs for fundraising as well. So here's a good question that's come in. How important is it to have a technical founder from the outset? I mean, that's technical expertise, which can be brought in at any point. Would you make that person a founder? Would you give them uh, some vested equity or would you just contract out? Rosie, what did you do having built this bot? So it's a bit of a hybrid, to be honest. And um, some of the underlying algorithm, it was a hybrid. Like we contracted out, but I took a lot of responsibility for design. I can't code Python, but I can design how I want it to work, if that makes sense. And then the build, we outsourced some of the stuff that was quite standard about kind of basically building a website and, and effectively a bit like building an app. But we kept in-house the business of tying quite smart algorithm to the quite smart chatbots to the quite standard 
craft, if you like. And that we contracted to uh, somebody we knew really well. And actually, as it happened after he contracted with us for six months, he said it was the most innovative and exciting project he'd had to work on him for a long time and asked to join us as a founder. And we moved into a hexagon. What about you, Nessie? I know the answer, but I'm a playing devil's advocate here. <laughs> yeah, sure. I mean, we contracted out. And I think the question is, is the building of the thing the hard part or is it the defining of the thing? Yeah. And we're building a social network. These things exist. Um, anyone that knows how to code should know how to build the thing. So we weren't solving a hard technical problem. We were trying to come up with a user experience and perhaps a business model that would be interesting to someone who used it. So uh, it's it's worked. We were still with the same team that built our first real MVP. Um, and they feel like they're my guys. You know, a few of them are dedicated to us. Uh, so it's the same as, as having them in-house or having them almost as founders. But um, it works for us. Yeah, but you're right, actually. So we see ourselves as a technical company, first and foremost. So to that kind of guts of it is quite important to have in certain of Yeah, you're right. Yeah. It's, what's your business model? What's your USP? Yeah, for EAC, we had um, a chief technology officer, a full stack developer, quite a technical person and very experienced. And I would definitely try to recommend if you can find a technical person to join as co-founder and if it has a cultural fit and basically it has uh, interest in what you're building, it's always great uh, to have somebody on, on board on the co-founding team. Nasty and Rosie, I mean, did, did you give your, your techies uh, any, any equity or just paying them? Our CTO is an equity old. Yeah. Yeah, so equity for, for hours. Yeah, okay. Okay. Rosie, let's talk about equity. What tool did you use? And this resonates with, uh, with a question here that we've got in chat as well. Did you use a particular tool to carve up the pie or? It was mostly an honest discussion, but I have heard of some quite good tools. There's something called sharing the pie slicing the pie if you do a google search for it and what i quite liked about that because i'm quite sort of methodical thinker it helped me rationalize my arguments for where we should be and what was fair because there's different contributions like who came up with the idea who helped build the mvp so that we could actually test it who brings the connections and the connectivity that can actually make it grow people bring different things to the table and Unfortunately, I think it's human nature to perhaps over-recognise your own contribution in this argument, but maybe I'm, I'm being unfair. <laughs> and so it's quite useful to have some of those things, those arguments set out quite rationally so that everybody can get on board on the same basis. Mm -hmm. There's another one which is vested as well. Vested I brought into the incubator, if you remember, but uh, there's, a, there's a couple of tools. I think Seed Legals as well, they have a, they have yeah, a tool. Yeah, Seed Legals offer a tool, Vested yeah. offer a tool. We're looking at Vested now, but a bit later to put in place an option package because we don't have, we have the founders, but we need to put in place an option package for future mm -hmm. hires and stuff, and we need to do that next. What about you, Pedro? What have you used? We're using Seed Legals. But at the beginning, we split the shares evenly across the three co-founders. I'm uh, more of the opinion of, you know, like having a small pie of something really big rather than having a big pie of uh, something really small. So literally, and all the employees at YAC have uh, shares. So basically that's the way that we align incentives. 
and everyone shares the, the upside. And in regards to a question of the rule of thumb for startup equity dilution, I remember in the very interesting course we had at LVS of financing the entrepreneurial journey, normally you would like that the initial founding team keeps around 50% of the company after Series A. So basically you have to give around or, or you can give around 50% of your shares on pre-seed, seed, and perhaps another follow, like a bridge round to get to, to Series A. So if you give 25% of equity to the VC in pre-seed, then you have like 25 left. So basically it's um, a rule of thumb would be anywhere between 15 to 25% every stage. And that's up to the person who negotiates the, the term sheet the valuations, comparable valuations in, in the market, and also the execution, the milestones that, that you've reached. So it's it's a bit of a combination of, of that, but obviously try to negotiate 15% uh, so that whenever you are on Series A, you've got 55% of the company. Thank you, Pedro. Interesting question from APA. Um, what strategy do you put in place to retain highly skilled hiring that you you have for your startup, apart from obviously increasing their salaries? I mean, does this go back to equity where you drip feed the more equity out of, out of the equity pool? You don't have to always pay them high price. You can negotiate a deal, whether it's attractive and, and you know, like uh, your best tool is to use your capital structure and issue employee stock options to incentivize talented people to, to join your mission. Are you all of the same opinion done the same thing i think for us jane and you know i can't really speak as um as formally as as pedro um they do a phenomenal job we have strategically hired people from regions that we can afford and we just really look for for gems um, so we have a bunch of people who were tricky to justify when we made the hire and we had to spend some time really polishing them um, but but they're phenomenal now. Uh, so I think just out of necessity, picking people, Ghana, India, South Africa, with you know salaries we can manage, not super incredible CVs before we got them, but probably really valuable moving on from us if they ever do. Um, and then just giving them work that they're really interested in, keep them excited. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think keep, keep them excited, certainly, and engaged, of course. I'd agree. I mean, our team seem to be motivated by wanting to do something new and do something different. You know, certainly um, the dev team side, they, they feel like they're inventing something new and that's really, really motivating. Mm. Jane, I'd just say we missed Lawrence Evans's low code question. I think Lawrence is, is still on the call. Absolutely. So Lawrence, I'm, I'm by no means a techie, but I do understand that our business is built on the technology and that's our USP and that's our competitive mode. So we can't scrimp on it. So we didn't low code, but that didn't stop us using off the shelf pieces right. as we built it. Um, so for example, we're building a chatbot. Amazon Web Services have something called Lex, which is a chatbot technology. We built it on the back of that, but we did outgrow it much faster than I expected. And we mm. ended up substituting it with real stuff. So I guess where there are low-code, no-code solutions, yes. But I, I would imagine if you're a tech-focused business, you're, you're going to swap them back out again quite quickly. But it does get you to market. And if your aim is MVP and 
customer testing makes a lot of sense. Yes, so by disclosure, we're a global thought leadership firm. I'm also a founder of my own company, but we've just published for Mendix, a Siemens company, a report called The State of Low Code, looking at global trends and low code. And one of the advantages of low code is you hit on it, Rosie, is the ability to scale very quickly from design to execution. So maybe not in the initial stage, but when you, once you have your key idea, the ability to be able to bolt on lots of modules very quickly. And you know we're all looking for ways to scale more quickly. That's just one of them. There are other ways of scaling, but it's something to, to think about for the next stage. And certainly, I think people are pointing to platforms like Shopify that let you do that. And we've got a Shopify yeah. app and that. Right. I mean, we can install all of our product on a Shopify website. I think our record is four minutes, but the average is eight. Impressive. James has just asked uh, a general question, one, one for me, I guess, about how do we participate in the incubator? Um, if you're an alum of London Business School and you've graduated in the last three years, then do feel free to drop me a line and uh, I can certainly discuss the, uh, the parameters for application with you directly. If I may, I'm going to have the last question. I like having the last words to so all of you three guys. If you knew then what you know now, would you have done it? Pedro. Yes, it's a painful yes, because obviously it, there's been a lot of uncertainty and a lot of uh, learnings, but uh, definitely it's on the correct side of capitalism. <laughs> Excellent. Great. Nasi. Yeah, absolutely, Chen. I heard somewhere that the three things a founder has to do at this stage. One, don't fight with a co-founder. I don't have one, so that's okay. <laughs> to get to product market fit. That's what I do every day and it's fun. So I love that. And three, don't die. Um, and we're still alive. So if I knew that a year ago, then it would be worth continuing. So absolutely. Excellent. Excellent. Keep up the great work. And Rosie. Yes, with bells on, with bells on. Loving it. Wonderful. Great. Well, three fantastic examples of entrepreneurship at London Business School. It was a pleasure working with you last year. It's been fantastic hosting you this evening. Thank you for your honesty. It's, it's so easy for entrepreneurs to get up and speak about uh, all the things that went right. And, and sometimes it just takes that real sort of uh, special person to be so honest and open and to share those learnings with our wonderful audience today. So thank you really so much, all three of you. Many thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to this podcast from our webinar series, providing help to aspiring entrepreneurs. And I hope it was of help to you. For more on this topic and to continue your entrepreneurship journey, please visit london.edu forward slash innovation.